Welcome to the Public Morality. One of the traditions of the Public Morality is its annual baseball broadcast. But with the impact of COVID, that tradition was interrupted last year. I'm happy to say that tradition has returned as we celebrate a new book on the life of Jackie Robinson. But 42 Today, Jackie Robinson and His Legacy is much more than a baseball book. It is a compelling series of essays written by some of America's best writers, edited by Michael Long, that seeks to get at the breadth of the Robinson legacy. Not only as the first black man to play Major League Baseball, but also as a civil rights leader and an American icon. Perhaps more important, it is a bold attempt to detach the man from the myth. We are joined once again by author Michael Long. Long is the author and editor of numerous books on nonviolent protests, civil rights, LGBTQ rights, politics, and religion. Michael Long, welcome back to The Public Morality. Byron, thank you so much for having me. It's always good to chat with you. Let's begin with having you discuss your journey with Jackie Robinson. And I call it a journey because this is not your first endeavor with Robinson. So talk about what, what's been your motivation to, to capture Robinson in so many different ways? Well, early on, I wasn't interested in Robinson too much, believe it or not. I mean, I'd read the requisite children's books along the way, but I was working on Richard Nixon. This would have been about a decade ago, maybe even more. Uh, and I was at the archives in California, and an archivist came out and said, hey, Mike, have you seen the Jackie Robinson files? And I hadn't. So he brought out this thick file of correspondence, letters between Nixon and Robinson that covered everything from politics to civil rights to social issues to economics. And I was captivated by that. Uh, I was captivated by Robinson's take and by the way that he criticized Nixon along the way. So I took the file uh, I didn't take the file out of the archives. I would have been arrested. But I, but I took my understanding of the file back to my hotel room, and I thought, I really need to do something with this. I eventually decided to contact Rachel Robinson and ask for her permission to do a book on civil rights letters, and she kindly granted it. She was very gracious, still is, a wonderful woman. And that really got me started on the journey, Byron, uh, my interest in Robinson's civil rights and politics and economics. And from there, it just sort of blossomed. Mm-hmm. Now, now, talk specifically about this, this latest project, 42 Today. Talk about the creation of this, about, about this effort. So this book arises partly out of my frustration with Major League Baseball celebrations of Robinson every year, and partly just because I think the culture does the same thing that Major League Baseball does. And what happens in these celebrations is that we freeze Jackie Robinson in 1947. You know, he shattered the color barrier in Major League Baseball on April 15th, 1947. And this year, he's turning the other cheek. He's soldiering on nonviolently. And he's not fighting back. Uh, He's not fighting back because Baron Tricky, the general manager, had asked him not to fight back. And Robinson agreed to do that. He's He's a safe non-threatening figure in 1947. And this is a figure that most of us celebrate every year, this very safe, clean-cut, smiling baseball player who doesn't really threaten us. 
And so I wanted to dig deeper than that image, that popular image of Robinson. And I also wanted to uh, get beyond Major League Baseball's celebration of Jackie Robinson every day on April, every year on April 15th. And so I encouraged the uh, contributors to dig more deeply. And we approached Robinson from a lot of different angles, not only from his baseball years, but also from what fueled him early on and then what he did after baseball. You know, Rachel Robinson says that Jack, she calls him Jack, was an informal civil rights leader. And that's the emphasis of Robinson's life that she wants to draw attention to. So I wanted the contributors to do that as well. So really my desire to present Robinson in this really multi-dimensional deep way uh, is at the root of this new book called 42 Today, Jackie Robinson and His Legacy. One of the overarching themes that I took away from the text that's applicable uh, not just to Robinson, but to many popular figures, uh, dare I say great people, is that great people are complicated. And, and talk about the complexity of Robinson. Yeah, I mean, if we just look at the issue of peace and nonviolence, just Let's just stick with that. Uh, this is one good example of where he's so complex. Uh, in the Negro Leagues, his colleagues said that he had a temper like a rattlesnake, which I find really interesting. Then he gets to the Major League Baseball, and Ricky wants Robinson. Let's be clear about this first. He wants Robinson because he's fiery. He knows that Robinson has a fiery temper, but he also knows that Robinson is principled enough and of such a character that he'll put that fiery temper in check in order to advance first-class citizenship for black Americans. He knows Robinson will do this. And that's exactly what Robinson does in 1947. It's incredibly difficult for him to do. There's that one scene in 42 when the Philadelphia Phillies are in the dugout and Ben Chapman, their manager, is leading them and hurling all kinds of racist taunts and jeers at Robinson. And it, at this point, Robinson is showing his complexity. He feels as if he wants to throw his bat down, he says, and march over to the dugout and use what he says is his despised black fists to pound those white sons of you-know-whats into submission. I like that reflection that Robinson gave us because it gets to his complexity on the issues of peace and nonviolence. He had a tough time in 1947, but he did it for the good of the cause. After he was released from that admonition to turn the other cheek, he really let go. He argued with umpires. He argued with other players. He did his own hard slides, right? Uh, he argued with sports writers when he felt he was being treated unfairly and unjustly. And then after baseball, he really comes into his own, I think. He becomes much more aggressive, he says, after baseball. And on these issues of peace and war and nonviolence, he is a big supporter of peace and nonviolence in the civil rights movement, but he also supports the Vietnam War. Robinson, again, he's not a pacifist. He thinks pursuing civil rights nonviolently and peacefully is a good thing, but he also believes that fighting communism abroad, using force to do so, is also a good thing. He also takes on Malcolm X on this very point. He believes that Malcolm X is wrong. Uh, to use any means necessary in order to uh, protect black folks. But then in 1970, he stands next to the Black Panthers and says that he supports their efforts to defend themselves against police brutality. That guy is really complex and complicated. Well, in the very first essay uh, written by uh, Howard Bryant, 
He talks about those two Robinsons that were that that, and I, and I hear this is part of what your, uh, I'll call it your subversive goal was to try to reconcile the safe, non-threatening hero versus the that one that made the status quo uncomfortable. And I and I wondered, can those two be reconciled? Do we have the maturity to reconcile those two Robinsons in your view? Yeah, that is a great question. I'm not so sure they can be reconciled, and I'm not so sure that we want to reconcile them either. When he wrote his final biography with Alfred Duckett, he says something like, white fans were fine with me when I bent my back for a lily white sport, but then when I straightened my back and came into my own, they turned on me. Those are really telling words from Robinson in 1972. They sort of indicate to me that he never really reconciled those two figures. The one place where we can reconcile them is in his commitment to first-class citizenship. This was a man who consistently did what he thought was necessary and required, even sometimes when it went against his own inclination, in order to advance rights for black people. So I think on that point, Byron, we can see that there's some sort of connection between these two figures, but I don't think we want to synthesize them or overly synthesize them. Talk about what I understood, specifically reading um, Chris Lamb's essay, What the White Media Missed. Talk about that divergent meaning of having Robinson's name in the Brooklyn Dodgers lineup on April 15, 1947, not only for the black press, the white press, but also for American culture. Yeah, you know, Branch Rickey did not act on his own. He acted under pressure when he brought Robinson into the Dodgers system. Uh, up to this, up to 1947, black media, especially Wendell uh, Smith at the Pittsburgh Courier, had been clamoring for a black player in Major League Baseball. They'd been trying to arrange tryouts, Pittsburgh Pirates, Boston Red Sox, even the Dodgers. They had long been clamoring for a black player. You know, what's interesting to me is that the white communists had been doing the same thing, and black communists were doing the same thing. The Daily Worker regularly published articles on the need for an injection of blackness into white major league baseball. And then what these folks did was to pressure white politicians, liberal and progressive politicians, to squeeze major league owners into bringing black folks into Major League Baseball. When Robinson's debut happens on April 15, 1947, it's a grand day for celebration among the black media. They know how long they'd been fighting to tear down the barrier. They were part of that grand fight, and Robinson was the culmination of their long fight to do that. They knew the history of racism. And in their articles, they spell that out. And they also depict Robinson's debut as part of the possible future that black Americans could enter into, a place where they would be judged on their merit, not merely the color of their skin. White media at the same time, however, ignored those parts of the story. The white media was part of this system racism that had built that barrier. 1945, this is in Chris's essay as well, the New York sports writers had uh, their own celebration at Manhattan. It was their annual celebration, and they put on a blackface skit. And they put on, they depicted Jackie Robinson as a black 
butler in a white aristocratic Southern home. It's a horrific skit, but it gives you some indication that the white sports writers were part of that barrier that had been constructed in Major League Baseball. They weren't merely observers of it. They had contributed to it. And so when Robinson debuts on April 15th, 1947, they missed their own complicity and the barrier that Robinson overcame. Would it be fair, following up on that question, would it be fair to suggest that the cultural importance of baseball took on different meanings within the cultures? That black people saw the, the cultural importance of baseball in a very, very different way than, say, the white majority. Would that be fair? Oh, that's more than fair, Byron. And I want to even push it a little bit and say there were a lot of interpersonal differences as well, uh, interpersonal differences between the cultures. When Robinson debuted in April 1947, a flood of letters entered his mailbox, and many of them were from black folks in the poor South. Some of them would say, you know, we gathered together on the afternoons when you're playing for the Dodgers, we go to the local town store, we gather around the radio and listen for you, and we cheer for you. He lifted their lives, at least attitudinally. He got a lot of letters from black boys and girls who told him how much he inspired them to do better, how much he gave them hope that life would be different for them as it was for Jack Roosevelt Robinson. The changes in black culture were really dramatic when Robinson entered. One of the contributors says it's the most dramatic change in probably black America and white America since reconstruction. It seems to overstate the point, but I really think that's pretty much on point. Uh, In terms of white America, at least let's just look at Brooklyn. What happens in among white residents in Brooklyn and white fans of the Dodgers is that they become more aligned with the black fans of the Dodgers when they see that that Robinson performs. Now, when Robinson showed up for the Dodgers, he didn't have a locker room. He just had a peg with his jersey on it. He had to make a number out of 42, and he did uh, because the Dodgers weren't quite sure whether he would succeed, but he succeeded with the help of mostly black fans, but also black and white fans who came together. And they came together because they saw that Robinson could get them a pennant, because Robinson could get them several pennants and possibly the World Series. And that's when Robinson's teammates came around too, when they saw that how good he was on the field. They weren't there in the beginning, but they came around. You know, in every segment, uh, of Robinson's life that really comes out um, in these series of essays, there there's this indomitable spirit that we become privy to as he's as a child in Pasadena, as a lieutenant in the Army, the Kansas City Monarchs, the Brooklyn Dodgers, post-baseball. Where, in your view, does that spirit come from? I think it comes primarily from his mother, Mally, a wonderful woman. Uh, And Robinson, oh my gosh, he deeply admired and loved his mother. She was with him when he was inducted into the Hall of Fame, and so was Rachel, of course. But I think that spirit comes early on from his mother. Shortly after Robinson was born, he was still in diapers. His mother migrated to California. She, She boarded her 
self and the five kids, the five Robinsons kids, the biological father, Jerry, had fled on what she called the freedom train. They were going to the promised land. And in America, the promised land is always in California. Unfortunately, it's not in North Carolina. It's in California. So that's where they went. And she gave him a great model of the need to make freedom happen in your life. And so Robinson grew up with that sense that freedom is a thing to be grasped. It's a thing to be created right here and right now, not to be longed for in heaven or in the sweet by and by or the pie in the sky. But freedom, she taught him, is God's gift to be grasped and made right here. She also taught him about the dignity of the color of his skin. She taught him the story of Adam and Eve. Byron, but she gives it a really interesting twist. She says Adam and Eve were originally black. And then they were scared white when God caught Eve eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So she teaches this lesson to Robinson to help him understand in his own unique way and in her own unique way that the color of his skin is ordained by God. It's part of God's original intentions for humanity and that he should be take great pride in the color of his skin. And, you know, Rachel Robinson, uh, when she met Jack at UCLA, said she was partly attracted to him because he wore these starched, clean, purely white shirts that accentuated the color of his dark skin. So Robinson grows up with this belief that he's full of dignity and that he's designed for freedom. And that really gives him the fuel to soldier on the rest of his life. Now, Robinson politically was, was an independent, often... Uh, not exclusively, but often leaned um, toward the Republican Party. But he wasn't someone who was necessarily wedded to orthodoxy. And I, and I just want to add for context, when we talk about the Republican Party in Robinson's day, it's not the same party as it is in the 21st century. But talk about Robinson's political awakening, if you would, and, and how how is that in line with the rest of the Robinson we've been talking about thus far? Feel free to ask some follow-ups. This is a long story. I'll try to keep it shorter. <laughs> <laughs> you might like Robinson was an independent. You're right. And he did steer Republican. He was concerned about the Democrats. Remember, they were full of the Dixiecrats, the Southern Democrats who obstructed civil rights legislation, including the 1957 Civil Rights Act. So Robinson takes his first deep dive in 1960 presidential campaign, where he leaves his job at Chock Full of Nuts, takes a sabbatical and campaigns full time for Richard Nixon. 1960. Why is he going to Nixon? And who's Nixon's opponent? John F. Kennedy, for goodness sake, uh, whom Rachel, by the way, loves. So they're on different tracks in the 1960 presidential campaign. Robinson is attracted to Nixon because Nixon had steered passage of the 1957 Civil Rights Act. He had visited Africa and spoke about the evils of racial discrimination back home. And he had also promised Robinson that he would move faster on civil rights legislation than Eisenhower ever did. On the other hand, Kennedy becomes an obstruction to Robinson because the two of them meet in Georgetown and Robinson says Kennedy never once looked him in the eye. And that meant a lot to Robinson. Kennedy also says he doesn't know a whole lot about black concerns. And Robinson is concerned about some of Kennedy's past uh, acts in terms of civil rights legislation. So Robinson takes a deep dive with Richard Nixon in 1960. He eventually sours. He sours not only on Nixon, but also the Republican Party. And this happens around 1964. 
1961, just to back up a little bit, Barry Goldwater is speaking to a group of Republicans, and he says, we need to go hunting where the ducks are. And this is the beginning of the Southern strategy when Republicans go after disaffected Democrats, primarily in the South. It's called the Southern strategy to bring them into the Republican Party. And as they do that, they leave behind black voters and black concerns. So in 1964, Robinson is no longer a supporter of the Republican Party because Barry Goldwater bubbles up. Robinson loves Nelson Rockefeller in 1964. Robinson still is attracted to the Republican Party. He's an anti-communist. He's really interested in business and finance, like somebody like Nelson Rockefeller, but he's also progressive on civil rights. So he steers toward folks like Nelson Rockefeller in New York, George Romney in New York, and Bill Scranton in Pennsylvania. They fall out of the picture in 1964 when Goldwater bubbles up to the service surface. Robinson says it's a racist ticket. And I don't think the GOP has ever really recovered since 1964. Well, actually, you addressed all the all the follow-up questions I had there, so you did an excellent job. And just for our listeners, George Romney was the governor of Michigan and not, not New York. I just want to make sure we're, we're, we're for that clarification, because someone will write me. Speaking with uh, writer Michael Long about his latest book, 42 Today, Michael, I was particularly struck with Emil Rogers' essay on the gay Jackie Robinson, in that it was not not that so much it was just a pushback. It certainly wasn't a pushback against LGBT equality, but 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 it was a pushback against the traditionally American process to oversimplify. Like so and so is the, the 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 gay Jackie Robinson, or the you know just sort of, sort of putting it in a box. And I found Rogers' essay to really delve into the complexities where there was warrant comparison, and where we need to keep those struggles specific to that particular group, because it, it in one sense it does Harvey Milk a disservice to say you know he was the gay Jackie Robinson like it sort of diminishes Harvey Milk's legacy as well so I wondered how you saw that yeah that's a great essay I love that essay in the book Adam makes the case that it's problematic to call somebody the gay Jackie Robinson because the racism and ferocity that Robinson faced in 1947 would be markedly different from the difficulties that an LGBTQ person might face in 2021. There's a constituency of support uh, that LGBTQ individuals have now in mainstream society that Robinson lacked in 1947. So Adam's really careful when he talks about a gay Jackie Robinson and Jackie Robinson. I really appreciate that point. That's a nicely nuanced point. He also makes the case that it's unfair to hold LGBTQ athletes to Jackie Robinson's standard because Robinson's standard was through the roof. I mean, the bench that he set is not even earthbound. This is a guy, as you know, who developed who put up Hall of Fame statistics, and he did so under enormous pressure, sometimes under death threats. So it's ridiculous to expect any athletes of today, including LGBTQ athletes, to perform at that level under those circumstances. At the same time, 
we don't want to deny the significance of LGBTQ athletes in any of the sports, especially Major League Baseball, which is about as socially conservative as you can get in terms of dealing with uh, issues of sexuality and gender. Well, I mean, and, and there's a real irony specific to LGBTQ athletes because Robinson played for the Dodgers, as did someone who I actually knew because we both hail from Berkeley, Glenn Burke, also played for the Dodgers, who was a, a gay athlete. And the Dodgers handled Burke's situation in the mid-'70s very, very different. As you, as you mentioned earlier, the Dodgers eventually came around because Jack Robinson was helping them win titles. The Dodgers in Burksdale were a pretty good team, but never really came around. Yeah, that's a fascinating point. So Glenn Burke uh, is a gay man, a solid, really solid player. He goes to the Dodgers in 1977. And... He's a high-energy player, according to Adam, and it seems as if he might have originated the high five, which is a fascinating that, point. That, is, me. The, that is the rumor. That is, that is the, that's the urban myth, that he did originate the high five with Dusty Baker. <laughs> I love urban myths. <laughs> I'll take that one. So it's, it becomes pretty clear that Glenn Burke, to those who know him in the locker room and management, is gay. And Walter O'Malley is not a fan, uh, and he treats... He treated Robinson poorly, but he even treats Burke even more poorly, I think. He offers Burke $75,000 to marry. And Burke, I think, is lying. If I can pull it out here, says, oh, I guess you mean to a woman. <laughs> and Burke, <laughs> Burke denies the money, and he's eventually traded. But what complicating the matter is that he dates Tommy Lazordo's son. Zordo never really warmed up to that either, and he never really conceded that his son, as far as I know, uh, dated Glenn Burke. But Glenn Burke is eventually traded from the Dodgers, and then he goes on to the Oakland A's, and who's the ma manager there? Billy Martin, yeah. who calls him the F-word, not the shorter F-word, right. but the longer F-word. And Glenn Burke is eventually sent to the minors. He didn't have to be. He was a solid player, but he was sent to the minors because he was gay. He was traded because he was gay. Like all famous people, and we sort of touched on this earlier, and I want to end the conversation, have you come back to it. There is a tension with most famous people between the myth you know, and reality. Take any famous, any famous person, whether it's Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King, there's the myth, there's the reality. Talk about the efforts in this project to remove Jackie Robinson the man away from Jackie Robinson the myth. Yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out about other figures. It's true not only of Robinson, isn't that right? When we look at Malcolm X, for example, this one goes in reverse. The Malcolm X of the myth is the any means necessary Malcolm who believes in the separate state for black folks. But the bigger Malcolm is the one who appeared after Mecca, right, who embraced racial integration on some levels and, and, and adopted peaceful means. Same thing happens to Robinson. We stick him in the myth, and that is the myth of 1947, where he's not threatening, where he's so safe. And what the book tries to do is to counter that myth. We don't want to deny that Robinson was like that in 1947. That's part of who he was, and we need to celebrate that partly April 15th, 19, or 2021, and every year on. But we can't stop there. 
We need to dig deeper. We need to see the informal civil rights leader who Jackie Robinson was. We need to see the man who had a temper like a rattlesnake. We see, need to see the man who was personally convicted to straighten his own backbone and not to rely on white folks like Branch Rickey or Nelson Rockefeller. We need to see Robinson in some ways as a man who made a way out of no way. We also need to see him, if you ask me, Byron, as somebody who did it with Rachel. I think if there's somebody out there listening who's looking to write a biography, take up the pen and write about Rachel Robinson. What a heroic figure she was at the same time. And, you know, Robinson's legacy continues today uh, in the Jackie Robinson Foundation, which gives numerous scholarships to students of color. That is Rachel's legacy. It's Jack's legacy as well. Rachel says we can best honor Robinson's legacy by taking up the cause for racial equality wherever we see it. Isn't that interesting? She doesn't say just about uh, improving the numbers of black players in Major League Baseball. She says we should take up racial equality wherever we see it. That's the way we honor Robinson's legacy. And that's the Robinson that we try to depict in the book, the man who fought racism wherever he saw it. Since you mentioned her, how does Rachel, and I'm going to use her language, how does Rachel feel about this latest treatment of Jack? You know, we just sent her the book, and I don't know. I know that she's concerned about uh, the racist trope, angry black man. And she's rightly concerned about that. That has long been used as a trope to keep black men in their place. And what we try to do is to make sure that we highlight Rachel's emphasis on Jack as a loving father, as somebody who wasn't bitter, but who was full of uh, love and devotion for his family and for his friends. We highlight that, but we do want to draw attention to the righteous anger that Robinson felt when he confronted social and racial inequality. And so we're complimenting, I think, Rachel's take on her husband by emphasizing Robinson not as an angry black man, which is of her concern, but as a man who is righteously angry. I think there's such a thing as righteous anger. He was righteously angry at racial injustice and indignity wherever he saw it. Well, I, I think, just in my view, and having the pleasure of reading the text already, I, I think you, you achieve that in that you do not paint Robinson as a one-dimensional figure. See, the one-dimensional figure, in my view, can be portrayed as, as an angry black man because he's, he's just one-dimensional. Or he's the, non, as you said earlier, the non-threatening. But I think you all paint a three-dimensional, complicated, righteous, you know, righteous, rightfully so complicated picture of who Jack Roosevelt Robinson was, and I commend you for that. Thank you, Byron. That's what we're after. The book, 42, Today, Jackie Robinson and His Legacy, edited by a friend of the public morality who's been on several times, Michael Long. Michael, I want to thank you for joining me today on the public morality. Much appreciated. Byron, I love the depth of your interviews and the knowledge and education that you bring to this show. So thank you so much. Stay tuned as I speak with law professor Tim Ostrud about the impact the recent impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump could have on American democracy. To continue our conversation, I'm joined by Tim Ostrud, 
Asud is former adjunct professor at Mitchell Hamlin School of Law in St. Paul, Minnesota. He also wrote the foreword to my most recent book, The Radical Declaration, an Enlightened American Idea. Asud is joining us today via Zoom. Tim Asud, welcome to The Public Morality. Well, thanks, Byron. It's fantastic to be here. What impact, in your opinion, did the second impeachment trial of President Trump have on American democracy? When, when I look at it, Byron, I, I saw it not as an attack on democracy, but I, I saw it as one of the predicted dangers within how Madison uh, defined a, a Republican form of government. Because if you remember, Madison said there, there, there could be internal challenges and external challenges, and there's internal and external control checks on, on, on democracy. His definition of a Republican form of government was one that got its powers from the people. What, what Trump did that Madison predicted is, is Madison said, sometimes there's going to be a minority individual or a more minority group that challenges the Republic for, Republican form of government because minorities will always try to tyrannize over majorities. So here comes, here comes, here comes Trump and here comes, comes the attack. And, and what they were doing is, is challenging one of the direct democratic portals in the system. Citizens can vote and citizens can sit on juries. That's how they directly participate. So it certainly was, a, was an alarming attack, but I think it was a predicted danger that Madison and the framers foresaw. And I think the system showed it could, it could handle it because, because we overcame uh, the, 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 the attack. Since you are a law professor, I'm going to ask you a law professor question. <laughs> was there merit in your view with the constitutional argument that former presidents cannot be impeached? You know, I, I certainly think that there's that there's enough room there that it's it's a legitimate, viable issue that that that's ripe for litigation. It, the, the text of the Constitution is not so clear that it's not ambiguous. So there is some am ambiguity there. And when and when you get ambiguity, people are going to argue on, e on, on either side. I think there's a strong argument that. It must be a sitting president, but I think there's a good legitimate argument that you can impeach a non-sitting president. So I think there's enough there where it's a, a legitimate issue. And, and you have to remember that the Supreme Court fills, uh, in, in our system, fills a number of, of purposes. It's not just to decide cases, even though that's what people think it is. It is a somewhat political body. It is an educational type body. It is a policy body in, in, in some respects. So it's got a lot of different overarching uh, uh, perspectives and, 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 and purposes in our system. So I think it's a legitimate Supreme Court issue. What, what I found really interesting in it is, is when, when scholars and senators were trying to separate the, the two punishments and, and, and there was lots of, lots of talk about, can we convict? and then take a separate vote on, on ineligibility to hold office. And somebody said, well, if, if that's true, can you, can you make an, a convicted president or ex-president ineligible without removal? If they're separable, they're separable both ways. And I think that cuts to the legitimacy of the issue as well. 
pretty interesting issue for I, I think for legal thinkers and, and and Supreme Court commentators, but tough to predict how how it were, would work out in practice. When you look when you look at the history, the historical impact of January six, should we be comparing it to say nine eleven, a seminal moment? That in that it's that it stretches the Constitution in some ways beyond our previous understanding, and specifically, there's no way the in my view the Patriot Act um, gets passed if it weren't for 9/11. So does January 6 have that kind of impact on our republic? I I think it certainly does and will. I think that's a, a pretty good observation, Byron. Um, constitutions kind of lay there in the background and there's power creep. Uh, our, our government, our federal government now certainly uh, encompasses far more power than the, than the founders would have ever anticipated. Uh, legislatures have, have given away a lot of power through administrative procedures and setting up administrative bodies. They have ceded powers directly to presidents in time of emergency, and, and, and those statutes have, have, have been broad. And, and, and you brought one up with, with 9-11. Certainly the Patriot Act was one of those. And, and the federal government has kind of crept up uh, in, in terms of both breadth and, and depth of power. Then something like this happens. And, and I think January 6th pointed us directly to that kind of, of, of situation. All of a sudden, you've got you've got a, a significant group of people that feels left out uh, of, of power, and, and there was no segment, no no outlet for that segment to to respond. They thought, so yeah, I, I think it truly is a I, I think it truly is a crisis in that sense. I, I think what's going to happen next, and and how this is going to be re, uh, responded to, is 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 huge. Federalism has waned, and, and, and I think maybe this crisis will get us back to the question of federalism a little more, and we'll ask it more explicitly and, and, and try to work up some resolution to that. And, and for, those, for those who skipped out when federalism was being taught, define it. Give us a Reader's Digest version of federalism, if you would. Well, federalism is what I call the vertical, the, the vertical separation of powers, the separation between powers that a government simply doesn't have, like, like the, the, the power to regulate speech to a certain extent, those, those inalienable rights that are, that are left with the people. Then you've got state powers, exclusive state powers, and shared powers between the federal and state government, and then federal power, to, power itself. So it's that vertical split, but the key concept of federalism that the, that the uh, founders made new was, was that, that a national government could directly act on, on the individual citizen. So the citizen has two sets of governments acting directly on them, state and federal. Is part of the frustration that, that some feel as a result of January 6th and, and then the impeachment and when you, when, that you talked about earlier, can we impeach a former president and can we, can we bar him from, uh, from uh, seeking office again. It's part of the frustration, the result of that Leviathan known as the American experiment that was really not designed to move at a rapid pace. And so impeach, so we the second impeachment of President Trump was done sort of at a rapid pace. It's sort of antithetical to, to the founding of, of our government. Your thoughts? Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean... We live in a fast society. We live in a, in a, in a 
very fast news cycle. We live in a, in a very active society where, where people are used to getting things done quickly. And that's simply not the way government is put together. There again, I, I think the founders tried very hard when they, when they established the constitutional principles to make sure that we didn't act impulsively, to make sure that there are always checks and balances. And one of them was the process should work slow. If we're going to make significant decisions that are going to have broad impact over long periods of time, they, they should be well thought out. They, they should not be impulsive. Uh, they should not be emotional. They should be more, quote, quote, rational. So, yeah, I think slow intentional movement is, is, is more palatable when, it, when we're talking about core functions. And I, and I think this is a core function. You contrast that to some of the rules and things that are that are set out in the in the Senate. Those internal rules they can be changed more quickly, but constitutional principles and constitutional reaction uh, reactions should come more slowly, and that's really frustrating to a to a modern society. Tim Ostrud, I want to thank you, sir, uh, for joining me today on the Public Morality. We much appreciate your your wise insight. Well, I hope, I, I hope it's helpful. I, I enjoyed being here. Thanks a lot, Byron. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama for allowing us to broadcast the public morality at their studios. The public morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. In the words of Martin Luther King, we may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at the public morality, I'm Byron Williams. (laughs) ¶¶